Please be seated. We are starting a sermon series today, a three-week series um, about our lives, our legacies, um, now and into eternity. And it's called From Living to Legacy. Um, You may have noticed, and if you didn't notice, then you might want to get your eyes checked, that there were participation ribbons in your seats as you came in. Um, I'd love for you to grab one of those and just grab that, hold it in your hand. I I don't remember these when I was younger. Um, I don't remember participation ribbons. In fact, I actually, in a way, remember remember the opposite. Um, We had first-place ribbons and second-place ribbons and third-place ribbons, and we've had last-place ribbons. Do you remember last-place ribbons? I mean, how is that for the egos of little kids? Like, you're the worst kid playing today? Here's a ribbon. Put this on so everyone knows. Try not to stab yourself because you're so uncoordinated when you put it on. I mean, it last-place ribbons. But today, you showed up. Here you go. You don't even know what sport you're playing, but you showed up. We're giving you a ribbon for it. Participation ribbon. I I don't want this to be my life. I don't want to come to the end and and for God to say, yeah, you breathed the whole time. Good job. I'm proud of you for taking those breaths. I, I I want something more than just participating in life. That's what this series is about. How do we live lives that are more than just breathing, more than just living? Something that is even more than a legacy just here, but a legacy that is remembered into eternity. And for three weeks, that's what we're going to look at. What does it mean to go from just living to a true legacy in the Lord? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, speak to us. Use your word to penetrate into our hearts and minds, our dreams, our desires. Lord, and change us. Uh, Inspire us, convict us, challenge us. Transform us to be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. When I was four years old, I was a very typical four-year-old boy. I had way too much energy, drove my parents crazy. I'm running all the time. I'm jumping on things I shouldn't jump on. I'm jumping off things I shouldn't jump off. I'm playing in the dirt. I'm eating the dirt. I'm doing all the things that four-year-old boys do. My wife was anything but an ordinary four-year-old little girl. Her mom had for her something she wanted done. And at four years of age, my wife started playing the violin. I'm playing in dirt, she's playing the violin. (laughs) And, and And her mom said, you're gonna play from four until you are out of high school. And you don't get a choice in the matter. You're gonna play. You're going to be a musician. Even if you don't like it, even if it's hard, you're gonna play because my mother-in-law had a passion for her daughter, 
something she wanted her daughter to do. The biggest question that we can ask if we are looking for what an eternal legacy is, what is God's great passion for his people? What is it that God is looking for from us? That's our question today. Would you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 22? This is our gospel reading. If you don't have a Bible with you, they're underneath the chairs. Matthew chapter 22. And in those pew Bibles there underneath the chairs, it's page 828. Matthew 22, we're going to start in verse 34. Heading up to this, um, you may recall that throughout the beginning of the Gospels, Jesus was often telling people not to talk about him. He was often telling people, don't say anything. Keep that quiet. As he moves on in his ministry and things become more and more public, you also see, like in this chapter, where the religious leaders start to get a little more aggressive. And here they are piled up, coming to catch him, coming to trap him. Verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So you've got one group of religious leaders. They try to trap him, but they fail. Pharisees hear it. They gather together. How can we trap him? How can we get this guy? Verse 35, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Right, this is a question that the content of the answer from Jesus' perspective is not really that important. This is a question meant to trap, to entangle, to cause him to trip up. Right, this is a question meant to test Jesus. Now, the test is not in the question itself. This is a question that's actually being asked. Uh, you've got these 613 commandments, and there's a discussion, which one is the, the greatest? If we're going to rank things, where do we put them? And so now Jesus has asked the question, the test is in the lawyer. This is a guy who knows the law. This is a guy who could catch him Whatever it is he says, whatever subtle thing may be off, whatever might not quite line up, somehow this guy is going to catch him. All right, I'll give you an example of my own life of what I mean. About six years ago, I think, um, I was on staff at Christ Church in Plano, as many of you know, and I was preaching a sermon out of 2 Corinthians. And there was a point that was dependent on something in the Greek grammar. And I get up and I get ready to make this point. And I look over and out of the corner of my eye is a guy that I'm pretty sure has never been to Christ Church until this point. At least I've never seen him. I've been there for a while. Now there's a lot of people. You know, there's 500 people in that room. But there was a guy sitting there that when I saw him, my heart leapt a little bit. And I thought, I don't know if I can make this point. His name was Daniel Wallace. Most of you don't know him, um, but he is a Greek scholar, like world-renowned Greek scholar. And I'm going, if I say anything wrong, if I'm even partly off, he is going to absolutely know it. And I wanted to walk with him afterwards and go, thanks, Dan. I mean, couldn't you have shown up when Father David was preaching? 
Now, here's the irony. He's sitting here today. He's never been here. He did it again. And now he may never come back because I've pointed him out right in the middle of the service. But I could not believe when I walked in, he's sitting going, he's my example, and he's sitting here again. But that is what was going on with him. There was Daniel Wallace. Dr. Wallace was there asking him the question, and anything that he said wrong, he was going to catch. He was going to get it. That's what they intended by the question. They weren't all that interested in the answer. Now, this is not my point of the sermon, but I want to throw it out there as a question. Do you ever approach God that way? Where what you're asking for, whatever that prayer is, the direction you're looking for, you're really approaching him to get a blessing on what you're already doing. The content of his answer is not as significant to you. It's just seeking something you already have and wanting him to bless it. That's what they're doing. Not seeking his blessing, but not worried about what he actually says except how they can catch him. But that's not how Jesus takes it. Jesus actually answers the question and he answers it in a way that is so significant that in another account in the Gospels, the response is not, ah, I got you. The response is, wow, that was good. <laughs> not really sure what I can say to that. that. That, yes, that is a good answer. Why is the answer so important? Let me give it to you like this. Let's say at work you want a promotion. Who is it that you need to please? The boss. I mean, it really doesn't matter what the people around you think. It doesn't actually even matter how well you're doing the work, unless it's what the boss actually wants. But his desire is the thing you most need if you want to go up in the company, get the raise, whatever it is, because he's the one making that decision. If you want a legacy in eternity, the greatest thing we can know is what our creator wants, the one who is in charge of eternity, the one who is in charge of right now, Asking a question saying, okay, the Old Testament, you've revealed yourself. You've revealed your laws. You revealed who you are. You reveal what you want from your people. And now you're going to sum that into one thing. The thing that is the first and great commandment that says, this is what I want from you. Here's his answer. Verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandments. Starting in verse 39 is what we're doing next week. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I mean, visually, just think about this. All right, here's, here's the New Testament. You know, these few pages right here. Here's the old. All of this is hanging on love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. How significant is that statement? That's his passion for us, that we would love him. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to love God? What does it mean for us? How do we take something from that? First, let me tell you what it means, and not me, but scripture. Hey, have you heard of the book, The Five Love Languages? There, there's some real validity to the idea that we receive love in different ways. 
that if your spouse needs quality time with you and you give a gift instead, the gift is not going to be well-received. But if you give the quality time, the gift will be well-received because there's something to, we receive love in different ways. And it's not that all five may not apply to you, but there's something about a certain way that you just, you feel it. This is what love means to you. And when that's done, you feel like, okay, I've been loved. I want to ask this question. What is God's love language? I'm not asking, when we talk about loving God, I'm not asking what we think it is or what we would do when we love because we are most often likely to love somebody in the way we want to be loved because that's how we experience love. And so we're going to do that back. So the question is not, if God is saying, I want you to love me with all your heart, mind, and strength, the question is not what does that mean to us, but what does it mean to him? What is love for God? Here is the briefest, simplest statement in scripture about it. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. If you mark in your Bibles, underline this. If you're using an electronic version and you can highlight, highlight it. 1 John chapter 5. It's on page 1023 if you've got one of the black Bibles or a whole lot of ESVs actually have the same page number. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. If you want to know what God's love language is, it's obedience, which is a weird love language. I mean, just think about it for a moment. Could you imagine if that were your love language to a friend? I feel the most loved when you obey me. You wouldn't have that friend very long. You know, it's, it's not, it's, you can't, we do it to our kids, maybe, but even that becomes kind of manipulative. If you love me, you'll clean your room. Uh, it, we, it, just, it doesn't work very well. But with God, that is loving God at its height. You can see this in multiple places in Scripture, and you're not going to see a different love language. Loving God is obedience. Now, what does that mean for us? Hey, number one, it should, if you don't already know this, it should change how you view obedience. Right, this is how in life, tell me if this isn't true of you, sometimes I obey the traffic laws because I don't want to get in trouble. That's one reason for obedience. I don't want to get in trouble. Sometimes I obey at work because I want something. I'm trying to earn something. That's what, the motivation of my obedience I want you to think about your motivation for obeying God. Have you ever been at a point where things aren't going right and you start going, I wonder if I've screwed up? Your first thought is, you weren't obeying, and so God must be doing something to you. Or, I want something from God. I need to do more. Right? That's not what we're talking about. Obedience is first and foremost our way of saying to God, I love you. When you take that step into obedience, right, and, and I'm not denying, by the way, we have a duty, we have all of these things, it is good and right to obey all those things, but first and foremost, I challenge you to start thinking of your obedience as an expression of love for God. That when I say I'm gonna do what he has said, I'm doing it saying, God, I love you. I'm not earning something, I'm not trying to make up for something I did back here. It's not because I'm racked with guilt. 
Those are other issues that need to be dealt with. But it is God, I love you. What you have done in your son, your mercy, your grace, the way you still walk with me through everything, the blessings you have poured into my life, I'm obeying because I love. That's number one. Number two, before I state it, I'm just going to tell you a story. Um, Some of you have heard this, some of you haven't. This revelation greatly impacted me a number of years ago. One of the first places, the first churches that I worked in was Trinity Bible Church in Richardson. I spent seven years there. James Wardian was one of the pastors on staff, and he spent time mentoring me. We would meet maybe once a month and just kind of talk through things. Um, James is actually responsible for me having any idea whatsoever how to preach. Because my first sermon was so atrocious that even my wife fell asleep while I was giving it. And James helped me tweak things a lot. James was a great guy. And he would ask me questions, and he's working through things. And he asked me this question, and honestly, I think about all the breakfasts we have. I don't remember anything that was said because it was like 15, 20 years ago. But I do remember this one breakfast I had with him. He asked me a question that you've probably all at some point had this asked you of some, and not, maybe not in these words, but in some way. He said, how is your walk with Jesus? It's James, so I wanted to be honest. I wanted to just not hide things from him. And I said, it's not bad, but it's not what I want it to be. I mean, I'm, I'm not reading my Bible like I want to. I want to be doing it every day, and I'm not doing it every day. Um, my prayer life is, I, I, I pray sometimes, but not like I want to pray. I mean, I want that relationship to be better. And he waited, and he said, okay, but how's your walk with Jesus? And I'm, I'm a little offended because I'm like, I, I just shared my heart with you, James. I don't know what else you want me to say. I mean, have any of you ever thought in that way? When you thought about your relationship to Christ, you thought about how you read your Bible or how you pray or how often you go to church, all those types of things. And James asked me this question. He said, how are you loving God and your neighbor? And honestly, I still have goosebumps now because for me, it was an I mean, it was like bricks fell on my head. And I went, oh my goodness. I have taken the practice and I've made it into the game. I've taken the means and I've made them the goal. As Jesus Christ died on a cross and rose again so that I could read the Bible. That is not why he gave his life. He didn't do it so you could come to a church He didn't do it so you could fast. When he gave his life, it was so that we would love him. It was so that he could redeem a people who would serve the Lord. I was so thinking of all of these methods and ways of doing things. And Think of it like this, and maybe this will never leave your head. We are almost to football season. Um, Almost to football season. Imagine after a Cowboys game. Tony Romo's at the podium, all the press is out there, and they're doing their post-game interview. And one of the guys says, Tony, tell us how you did in the game. How'd you feel about it? And Tony says, I practiced all week long hard for that game. 
And all the guys are looking at him going, and? Tony, how did, how did you feel about the game? You wouldn't believe this, but last week, I memorized all the NFL rules. I know all of them. I know every rule in the NFL. Okay, but Tony, how did you do in the game? We got together last night, the offense, last week. We huddled up in a little group, and we talked about the NFL. We even prayed for the upcoming game. But Tony, how did you play? All of the spiritual disciplines, reading scripture, praying, fasting, meditating, all of these things that we might do, they are good, they are necessary, but they are not the goal. God is not saying to anybody in this room, as long as you will memorize a chapter of scripture, you're good. That's what I want from you. That is not why he died. That is not why he rose. That is not why the spirit was sent. It was so that we might love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and our neighbor is ourself. That's why he came. Now, we need the others. I don't hear me say reading the Bible is not important. I don't hear me say you shouldn't pray because it's unnecessary. Could you imagine NFL players not practicing? I mean, if you've watched any of those initial summer camps where they're out there missing balls and falling down and getting hurt because they have not been practicing, we absolutely need to be reading the scriptures and praying and meeting and gathering. But it's so that we can love the Lord our God. It's so that we can love our neighbor as ourselves, not just for those things. So when I heard that my wife had started at age four playing violin, I figured her mom must have wanted her to be like a violin virtuoso, you know, a soloist somewhere. Why else would you start a kid at four? In fact, my mother-in-law actually, Aaron has three siblings, and my mother-in-law wanted a quartet. And so she had them all play instruments, and now they have a quartet in their home. But that wasn't the point. It's what I assumed was the point. I think it's what most people assume is the point. However, if that was the point, you all know, most of you know, my wife plays violin up here, and she is not a violin virtuoso. She's not a solo. She doesn't make CDs. She doesn't travel worldwide. If that was the point, my mother-in-law failed. But that was never the point. The point was to teach my wife endurance and responsibility. The point was to teach her that if you did something a little each day and you kept with it, you would get better and better and you would grow. That is very true of my wife. My wife has endurance. My wife goes through things. My wife believes in doing a little at a time and getting it done until it is finished. If that was the goal, my mother-in-law succeeded. But when I put my goals onto it, suddenly I'm missing the point. We cannot do the same thing with our faith. It's not our goals, it's his. It's not our passions, it's his. It's not our plans, it's his. And it's only by doing that that we will find our ultimate purpose and fulfillment and legacy because he is our creator. 
Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your laws. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your revelation of who you are, of who we are, of who you made us to be. Thank you for your son that makes it possible that in him we can have a new life. In him we can know you and have eternity. Heavenly Father, please help us to focus our minds and hearts on loving you. In the name of Jesus, amen.